I think a lot of times people think about like revisiting the past and a painful memory as like, oh, you just do it and all of a sudden some lesson comes out of it. It's actually, you need structure around it. Mm-hmm. You know, it is work. It's not always going to be painful. A lot of times it can be beautiful and it can be like a part of redefining your narrative mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. bit and like in that way taking control of your perception of yourself. Welcome to another episode of Airplane Mode. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. Today's guest is Bing Liu. Bing is the director behind the Oscar-nominated documentary, Minding the Gap, which is about three skateboarders, him and two of his friends. And as the movie unfolds, it sort of becomes clear that these three guys are all from families that have been touched in some way by domestic abuse. But Bing and I somehow ended up talking about ghosting. I asked him about ghosting, that phenomenon that happens in the modern dating world. And that led Bing into this really interesting story about someone he'd recently begun seeing. And that led us to a conversation where, you know, we're similar in age. I'm 29. He's 30. We're trying to unpack all the sort of complexities and weird oddities of dating in 2019. And it was interesting because the thing that came across about Bing so well in that conversation is the same thing that comes across if you watch Minding the Gap, which is like Bing has an unbelievable emotional fluency for someone of his age. And so to sit across from him and see how he can just be vulnerable and like emotionally honest was really powerful. And it's something that I enjoyed in our conversation. And, you know, I wanted to basically get at how does he do that? What's that like? What value does that bring to his life and to his relationships? And he answered those questions in a really powerful way and sort of presented a very compelling case for why you should bring more vulnerability into your life and how that might improve your relationship, not just with yourself, but also with meaningful people in your world. So not the conversation I anticipate having with Bing, but one that I enjoyed tremendously. Bing, welcome. Thank you for being me. me. Thank you for being me. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I've seen you talk about this, about using this movie as a proxy to sort of examine questions that you had or confusing life situations you were dealing with when you started filming in 2012. Is that right? Uh-huh. And so could you walk me through a few of what those questions you had or you were trying to examine might have been? Yeah. When I first started Minding the Gap, it was this project where I went around the country. It was, you know, talking and speaking with a lot of people that I just found would be interesting to talk to kind of like what you're doing with your podcast I think you know except mine was less dependent on my job uh (laughs) it was it was my side project and there were a couple questions I kept finding myself asking because it just it really cut to the core of what I was trying to get at one of the questions was who taught you how to love and the next question was who taught you how to hate It, it often you know of course it often led to conversations about family about, you know, things that happen in your family, things that happen in your childhood. And it's interesting to hear people talk unironically and earnestly about those two emotions and to, you know, try to get at, like, what those things are for people. And so you would have been 23 at that time? I'm 30 now. Yeah, I guess so. 22, 23. <laughs> Just yeah. forgive us. We're, we're yeah. not math people here. We, yeah, we're we're feelings people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you come to a question like, who taught you how to love as a 23-year-old? I mean, I grew up in the time of memoirs, self-help. I latched onto a friend group that was, you know, like artsy, I think. And and part of our rebellion was being emotional, I guess, especially as, as young men. It was like, 
you know, our version of rebelling was like listening to emotional music and, and talking about our feelings, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, damn the man, we're going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I was just, it, and it was, it felt good. It felt good to have latched onto that as a form of rebellion. I didn't, I don't think I like, you know, recognizes that back then it was just something that was different, like something that subconsciously made me feel like I could survive what I was going through. And I just, you know, soon that feeling of feeling like I had something that helped me turned into something that I was passionate about, Mm -hmm. which um, is kind of just like exploring your emotional inner life, exploring how one becomes who they are. And I think in hindsight, you know, I realized this later on, I had an immense fear of becoming my stepfather, who is very abusive. You know, and it's like with many people who haven't had good examples of how to become an adult, you do have examples of who you don't want to become, Mm -hmm. but it leaves a certain type of void. And I think that void uh, for me was something that was really interesting and and exciting to fill with how other people (laughs) were figuring it out and Mm -hmm. living it and failing and succeeding. And I think those were the things that were brewing and foaming as I was asking those questions of people. And so what did you find? I mean, I'm curious, those two questions, did one of them seem more easily answerable? Like were people easy to to pinpoint who taught them how to hate more than they were able to teach them how to love? Or what, what were sort of some of the things you found talking to people on that on that trip? A lot of people didn't know how to answer the love question. Hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people didn't even, it was it was a struggle for people to really pin down and wrestle the meaning of love and the meaning of hate. God, it's so hard to remember those conversations so long ago. My memory works in a way that's really emotion-based. Like okay. I, you know, I have trouble remembering facts and figures and specific things unless they emotionally resonate with me. But I remember Kier, who's one of the main participants of Minding the Gap, I met him a year into the process when I went back to Rockford. And when I asked him those questions, he said that he thought his mom taught him how to love. And he said that his dad, he thinks, taught him how to hate. And and I've seen you talk in interviews before about how you sort of witnessed an emotional vulnerability in these people you were talking to, but that they didn't know necessarily how to talk about it? Uh, I'm sorry. No worries. I'll put this on. Let me, it won't let me put do not disturb while it's calling. And I don't know how to reject the call. Okay, you have right. to put your phone on airplane okay. mode on the airplane mode podcast. I'm do not disturbing. Uh, so what was the question? When you were interviewing these skateboarders, you had, I believe you said once before that you saw an emotional vulnerability, but that we weren't talking about it enough. Oh, yeah. That's, that was what was exciting. I mean, it wasn't the first time I saw emotional vulnerability. I feel like, you know, and I think like most young people witness it and they experience it, but it's often and it's it's like a, a thing that's done more in private, more in places where you feel safe. And I think as a young person, you you start to develop ways of protecting your emotions because you slowly find out that it's like less and less okay to be earnest, to be forthright, to be wearing your emotions on your sleeves. But it, to me, it was frustrating because... Like I said, I had gotten to this point where I became passionate about emotional inner lives. And I found that it was pretty easy for people to talk about as long as you've come from a non-judgmental, safe place. And I thought, like, why, why? Yeah, it was just frustrating for me that we weren't 
more open about it. I mean, even now and back then too, like I feel like my ideal world is one in which we like communicate with pillow talks and truth circles all the time. And it's my favorite thing actually to be in like larger social settings where we're like playing some game that, you know, where it's like, there's no like winning. It's just, it's like, it's about being vulnerable and feeling safe and like having that tension be sort of, I don't know, like palpable in the room. It's electrifying when those experiences happen. I totally agree. I think I have, this is maybe not a completely cohesive comparison, but the phenomenon of ghosting in our culture, I wish that we were able to be honest with each other. Because ghosting is like, if you think about what it is, if you were face-to-face, it's like an insane thing. It would be like if someone asked you something and you just walked out of the room without talking to them. And I wish we had a sort of culture where we could communicate with one and say, look, I've enjoyed our first few dates together. You are great for X, Y, Z. I don't think it's a fit. And then go separate ways. But we don't have that ability to be honest with each other and vulnerable in that way. And I feel like that it strikes me as like a real failure of understanding and compassion in our culture. I just met someone in London a couple of weeks ago and uh, we, it was like after a screening, I went out with a group of people and I ended up going home with someone and we hooked up. And then the next morning we shared like an intimate breakfast and we just like really vibed. But like, as I was going to the airport the next day, we were WhatsApping and I was she was like, oh, it'd be great if we could, like, reconnect and go skate and travel and, like, make something together. And I was like, oh, my God, will you marry me? Kidding, not kidding. And then she's like, yeah, kidding, but not kidding. And then a couple of days later, she was like, what if we decide to get married? Like, what if we conceptually decide to get married? And hmm. so we kept talking about it. And it was like, all of a sudden, it shifts the framework hmm. of what you do when you search for intimacy and love. Because the modern quote-unquote game of what dating is, it's about priorities. It's with anything in life. It's like whatever you prioritize is like how you behave, is how you act, is how you think, is how you become, a, it's who you are as a person. So in dating and intimacy, if you prioritize relationships, first and foremost, then you're going to do what it takes to make a relationship work, hmm. to maintain a relationship, to enter a relationship, to keep a relationship from falling apart. But if your priority all of a sudden shifts to, you know, like trying to decide if this one single specific person is someone I want to spend the rest of my life with, it's a very different set of actions, thoughts that you have. All of a sudden it goes from like, oh, you know, I want to tell this person this, but I'm scared it might not make the relationship work, to I want to tell this person who I am and my insecurities and like what I think works between us and be so honest and vulnerable because... If I'm going to enter a lifelong partnership with this person, like, I don't want to be dishonest. I don't want to not be vulnerable. I want to, like, figure this stuff out now rather than have it trickle out over the course of whatever. And then also I think, like, it it makes ghosting sort of ridiculous because it's like, oh, no, like, we we can just communicate that this isn't going to work and at least we'll know. And, like, you know, there'll be a give and take there. Why do you think it is that we were so afraid of being vulnerable to share those things? Again, I think it comes down to prioritizing relationships. Like, it's about our self-worth. It's about, you know, like avoiding emotional pain. I think if we prioritize relationships, we put a lot of self-worth in whether a relationship works or not. The Mm -hmm. failure of the relationship is a failure and a rejection of us as people, as like, you know, like you're not worthy of a relationship. (laughs) But, you know... I'm going back to this model that I'm, it's sort of like this thing I've never done before. This is like sort of an experiment. It's like 
oh, if this doesn't work, it's a it's a rejection of you by this person, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a rejection of you like being not worthy in general. It's like, oh no, I ju- I'm just not compatible with this person. Interesting. I don't know. I don't think I'll ever be able to date again. Like even if this doesn't work out, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be able to date the same way again. You know? Yeah. How is it working out? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't detract from you know the your insecurities and how difficult it is to talk about it. That's still there. Mm-hmm. But the framework makes it more okay. It makes it there's a there's an incentive to talk about it in a way that's safer. I think. Huh. I mean. I think it does really depend. You can't do it with everybody. You have to like really be at the same level and like both want that same thing. And yeah, I, I think it was just like the right the things were formulating in my life, and I'd like been trying to like search for these things and trying to like read up more about love. And I'm been developing this documentary about millennial love, and it's like everything sort of just gelled, and the, and the timing was right to do this. You said something very interesting when you were talking about the skateboarders, and you were saying mm-hmm. a lot of them didn't know how to define love, even. Mm-hmm. So for this. The purposes of this talking about this project, could we maybe define what you consider to be love? Yeah, love is a verb, not a noun. Love only exists as an action where you're giving love or you're receiving love. I believe it doesn't exist outside of that. You have to be very careful about drawing the boundaries of what is included inside the box of love. Pain and hurting another person should not be included. It. My definition of it is not inclusive of hurting or giving or receiving pain um, intentionally. And that, I think, is the norm. It's what we learn as children. It's this idea of like, oh, they hurt me because they love me, right? And we just sort of, you know, because we don't talk about the definition of love, you know, we all sort of just implicitly don't draw boundaries around those things. It's interesting. So I, I read this book is like sort of what taught me a lot of these things. It's uh, All About Love by Bill Hooks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, she writes about going to this cocktail party and she's trying to like get a sense of the room about, you know, who is okay and not okay with hurting their romantic partner. And people are like, oh, yeah, no, you should never hurt your romantic partner. But then when asked, like, is it okay to hurt your children in order to teach them something, most people said, yeah, it is. And that's what, that's how children learn oftentimes. You know, like, you receive pain from somebody who's supposed to love you. And oftentimes the parent defines it as love. And so we internalize that and grow up and, you know, allow hurt ourselves as adults. I'm not you know, on this plane of, oh, that's wrong, or this is right. I'm just saying this is what happens, you know, and I'm not offering any solutions on on the childhood side, except for, you know, be very conscious about what you're doing when you, you know, are doing basically every action as a parent to try to teach your kids things, you know, be conscious of, you know, the effects of what hurting your child does. So that's the, for the vast majority of people, like that's how people sort of tend to include pain in their definition of love. And it's in a very subconscious way. One thing I think you did in the documentary and that you're obviously showing an unbelievable fluency and capability to do here is holding up the way that in the documentary, the characters hold up a mirror to their own behavior and sort of examine who they are and how they can be their best selves. That seems like something you might be exceptional at. And I'm curious if you could give people listening who are maybe not as good at being emotionally vulnerable and not as good at holding up a mirror to their own behavior, some advice about how you got to this level of emotional self-awareness or how they might be better at examining themselves. I think I want to place it less in a spectrum of being good or bad at it. It's more like, are you, you know, like, have you, have you like built up this muscle? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like going to the gym. And that's how I often conceptualize therapy for people. It's less going to fix something. It's more like going to the gym for your soul. You know, it's, it's just part of just staying healthy. 
I mean, if you want that, you can totally do it. It's not magic. It's just work. It's not easy. So, I mean, I think a lot of times people think about like revisiting the past and a painful memory as like, oh, you just do it and all of a sudden some lesson comes out of it. It's actually, you need structure around it. Mm -hmm. You know, it is work. It's it's not always going to be painful. A lot of times it can be beautiful and it can be like a part of redefining your narrative Mm -hmm. a little Mm -hmm. bit and like in that way taking control of your perception of yourself. I remember when I first discovered Myers-Briggs, I was like, oh, another dumb test on MySpace or something that's going to like tell me which Harry Potter house I'm supposed to be in. Um, <laughs> but then I was started reading up on it and I was like, oh my God, this is so true. And then I started, but then I got depressed because I think as I was growing up, something that helped me become who I was was I held on to this belief, this almost superstition that it's all nurture it's not a lot of nature Mm. it's like zero percent nature it's like you just define who you are and you can sort of like will yourself into being you know and i think it was a result of not wanting to become my stepfather so i got depressed that like oh maybe people are like wired in a certain way and just how they're born it's like has a lot to do with genes and dna and but like more recently i've just been like oh no this is great this helps us sort of become our best self it's just like more tools in the toolbox mm-hmm, to be able to mm-hmm. give us self reflection yeah so i think it is <laughs> as much as like i don't think it's like oh it's it's true or it's not you know with with all those with like attachment style tests and myers briggs and astrology i think they're actually tools to help you self reflect mm-hmm. i love that i was talking recently about i go to therapy and i was talking to someone a colleague here who also goes to therapy and his therapist characterize it to him as exposure therapy for vulnerability. Like in the same way, if you had arachnophobia or something, you would be exposed to spiders to get over it. Therapy is a way to expose yourself to vulnerability in a society where we maybe are not, as you definitely pointed out, always oriented towards earnestness and vulnerability. I also love the gym metaphor because when you do start going to therapy, you do start unearthing a lot of painful stuff. When you first go to the gym, after not having been to the gym, in my case, I didn't go to therapy for 28 years of my life. So If I didn't work out for 28 years and then I go to the gym, it's going to hurt. But because it's in the framework of sore muscles mean growth, I go back, right? But in therapy, you're like, oh, this is painful. I'm not going back. And it's because we've couched in a framework that doesn't allow you to sort of see pain or discomfort as growth the way you might in physical fitness. I'm nodding effusively at your extension of the metaphor. (laughs) I totally agree. One thing that's helped with, I guess, coping with the, the pain and discomfort of vulnerability for me is sort of like looking at things from the perspective of my deathbed, right? (laughs) And, you know, like just sort of like taking that Carl Sagan view of things. And it's like, okay, in the grand scheme of things, the things that I'm worried about in terms of vulnerability, which often comes from what do people think about me? Are people going to hurt me? Am I going to feel like I'm not worthy? If I just Carl Sagan out and look at the tiny pale blue dot I'm like oh okay like that's you know how much does this stuff actually matter in the grand scheme of things yeah it's very clarifying in a way I think skateboarding is sort of like a kinetic version of that hmm it's like as soon as you're not present while you're skateboarding that's when you get hurt that's when you fall it like forces you to be present also skateboarding is so ridiculous and like not there's there's very little benefit and it's very hard to like get sponsored and become like a career skateboarder. Like the reasons why you do it are like so so much of an antithesis to the rat race of our society of our like of capitalism and the the carrot and sticks of it that it reminds you how constructed everything is. That's another way for me to cope with the pain and discomfort of vulnerability huh. is remembering how constructed everything is. 
this is why I like David Foster Wallace so much is because, you know, like so much of his work just is about deconstructing the fabric of things and, you know, ultimately showing you, you know, how much of the stuff that I'm worrying about right now actually matters in the grand scheme of things. It sounds like that's how you thought about marriage too. It's like marriage ultimately is a construction. In a yeah, lot of ways. absolutely. And it's less about the marriage itself. It's more about, you know, like trying to get at intimacy and love in this difficult thing that we are living in this crazy yeah. short amount of time that we're here on earth. Normally we end this podcast with a favorite fuck up, but that just seems to flip. So I'm going to ask you <laughs> to end this. Who taught you how to love? Oh, wow. Uh, a lot of people in my life who have shown me kindness and concern and care without needing to bell hooks taught me how to love it's it's really crazy like i i wish i spent more time honoring the people that stepped into my life and really gave that to me sometimes without even realizing it it's a good note to end on yeah sort of do the kindness and the good that's in front of you yeah and you don't know the ways that it's gonna have downstream effects yeah i mean that's again that's why i love how love can be defined as a verb you know it's like you can just give love (laughs) and it's and it's it's that give love good message you came on and in 25 minutes i think you disrupted the notion of marriage and solved modern dating so you set the bar quite high for what uh, what we might be able to do on this podcast although you didn't turn your phone off so i'm gonna hold that against you slightly sorry also you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) bing thank you for coming on man i really appreciate it thanks for having me That's it. That's the show. Thanks to Bing for coming on for his candor and, of course, for his vulnerability. If you guys haven't seen Mind in the Gap, it's really tremendous, really powerful. Definitely go see it. Thanks to Jessamyn Molly, our producer, and thanks, as always, to you guys for listening. If you haven't subscribed, please do subscribe. Tell all your friends to subscribe. Maybe even write a review. And I'll see you guys next week.